Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight we look into why plant-based meat appears to have lost some of its sizzle of late, a question of cost, taste, competition, and more. So will it see growth once again and how? The Prime Minister travels to Asia to attend a series of major world gatherings, including the G20 in Indonesia taking place now and the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation meetings in Thailand later this week. And it all comes as Canada finally gets set to release its long-awaited Asia-Pacific strategy. It's Financial Literacy Month, and the focus this year is on debt. We get some tips on how to manage your money in these high-cost and high-interest-rate times. But first, Canada continues to struggle through a shortage of kids' pain medication, such as ibuprofen and acetaminophen. Health Canada announced new deals to bring in more supplies today, but there are questions as to why the government allowed the shortage to get this bad when other countries are not having similar issues. New shipments, apparently, of children's pain medication will be available for retail purchase in the coming weeks, thanks to foreign supplies recently secured by Health Canada, the regulator said today. Uh, Jean-Yves Duclos, the federal health minister, said the shipments are the equivalent to months of normal supply, of uh, which is in addition to increased domestic production of these products, because there's just can't keep them in stock. Um and we'll find out why in just a minute. Of course, we're not seeing the same kinds of shortages elsewhere, um, apparently. We're not seeing them in different countries. So Canada last month also approved the exceptional importation of ibuprofen from the U.S., acetaminophen from Australia to supply hospitals and hospitals here amid the shortage. So, of course, it came up in question period today. The Conservatives led off uh, QP in the House of Commons with Pierre Polyev asking why the government allowed this shortage to get this bad again when other countries are not having similar issues. No other country is experiencing similar shortages as Canada is. That forces our parents to drive south of the border and buy the medications in the United States where they are abundant and in supply and bring them back here. Many people are actually hawking them with a profit back in this country. Now, I wouldn't say they were abundant, not where I was. There certainly was uh, some, but not tons. Um, the health minister, as I was mentioning, says the government has secured that new procurement of painkillers that will get them onto drugstore shelves uh, and pharmacy shelves across Canada soon. Just a few hours ago, we announced an important importation of a few months additional supply of anesthesiologics for children, which will make a big difference in the ability of children to be cared in Canada. The health minister there, Jean-Yves Duclos. Uh, now, joining me now is Joel Latchkin. He's a, or Joel Latchkin, rather, sorry about that, an emeritus, emeritus professor at York University's Faculty of Health, where he studies pharmaceutical policy. Thanks so much for your time tonight. Well, it's good to be with you, Ben. So uh, tell me, what, because we talked about this over the summer, there was a bunch of different issues going on where they, there was a much more widespread shortage. Uh, what's happening now and why Canada? Well, that's an interesting question, and as far as I can see, there is no really good answer. Um, as you pointed out, you can get it in the States. We were, My wife and I were in Boston last week. Our daughter is expecting a baby in early um, January. We went into a pharmacy there and had no trouble getting um, liquid Tylenol for in case that baby develops problems. Um, I don't think, as far as I know, that the um, infection rates for young children, be it from COVID, influenza, RSV, um, are any different in the U.S. than they are in Canada. So I don't know 
and nobody um, that I've spoken to or read has been able to explain the the difference. Um, so it's a good question. Um, Health Canada doesn't seem to have, at least publicly, any answers for to that question. Um, when you look at some of the, I mean, this clearly doesn't happen often. And and again, if we go back to the summer, if I remember correctly, and correct me if I'm getting this wrong, but there was a shortage due to one problem at one plant in the U.S., I think in Michigan, um, that prompted a lot of this. That seems to have ironed itself out. So there's really no good reason why Canada all of a sudden couldn't catch up as when other places did. Well, certainly other countries did catch up. Um, you mentioned that we're going to be importing um, liquid um, from Australia back in June or July. Um, if you look at some of the stories coming out of Australian media, they had a shortage of liquid Tylenol for, for babies. Um, they seem to be have gotten over it. Um, it seems, and I say this without any inside knowledge, that Health Canada may not have taken the situation that seriously. This is actually not just from the um, past summer that we've had a problem. It goes back to April. So what's that now, seven months um, mm-hmm. that this yeah. problem has existed? Um, and we're only now getting additional uh, medications coming into the, uh, into the country. So the question is... Um, Did it take this long for Health Canada to negotiate for these supplies? Did they not bother looking into this um, a few months ago? Um, It would be nice for Health Canada to to give us some information. Yes, it would be. Um, If you look at the pharmaceutical industry broadly, is this the kind of shortage that we sometimes see? or, Or what would hypothetically lie behind a shortage of anything in one country? when you're not seeing it elsewhere? Um, Again, it would depend on a number of factors. So first of all, um, virtually every country, at least every Western country, Australia, the UK, Europe, the United States, it has chronic drug shortages. They're not the same in each country necessarily, um, and they may last different lengths of time but drug shortages of a variety of medications have been going on for at least a decade, probably longer than that. And one of the reasons why we have these drug shortages is that for economic reasons, the drug companies have offshored the production of what's called the active pharmaceutical ingredient. This is the the stuff in medication that actually does the job. 80% of the active pharmaceutical ingredients um, come from either China or India. And that's purely for economics. Um, People are paid less there. Production costs are less there. So even when you factor in the shipping um, back to North America, Western Europe, Australia, it's still, for the companies, less expensive to make things there. And for consumers, Consumers up until now don't seem to have minded too much because if you're paying out of pocket, it's less money. Um, And if you're 
if it's prescription drugs you're talking about, um, and they're covered under on provincial drug formularies, then um, provinces are paying less for those medications. When you look, I mean, we've been reading stories about people selling these things on the black market and so on in Canada, at least. Is there uh, an element here of, I mean, uh, they've been warning against panic buying for a while, but if I was a parent or, um, of a young child, I think I'd want to have some liquid Tylenol in hand. Do you think there's people are just buying up what they see? It could well be. I mean, I don't, again, I don't have any concrete evidence of that, but if we go back to the start of the pandemic, you remember the toilet paper shortage? <laughs> yes, indeed. Yes. And people were, were hoarding toilet paper because they were afraid it was going to run out. And, you know, the same thing may be happening with Tylenol, liquid Tylenol, liquid Advil. Um, I don't know for sure. Joel Lexchin, an emeritus professor at York University's Faculty of Health, where he studies pharmaceutical policy, is with us this half hour. We're talking about this ongoing shortage of some kids' medication in this country. Um, Health Canada announcing today a shipment that should replenish shelves somewhat, uh, and also hospitals. Last month, there was orders of uh, acetaminophen and ibuprofen from the U.S. and Australia that should help out hospitals. Uh, how long might this last? It, it sounds like it's a supply chain issue to some extent, but we don't really know, as you were mentioning earlier. How long might this last? I mean, we're right in the middle of, of obviously, a, a surge in viral infections in kids, so the timing couldn't be worse, and the demand is still high. But one would expect, like in Australia, where it's no longer flu season uh, or RSV season, that things would ease a bit. Well, hopefully they will. But this is a problem when you don't have domestic control over, um, over the products that you want. So again, if you think back to the um, to when the vaccine started to come uh, to be available, um, the um, Pfizer vaccine wasn't being um, we had trouble getting that for a while because it was being made um, in part in different parts of Europe, and there were um, problems um, with getting it exported to Canada. The um, AstraZeneca vaccine mostly was being made um, in India. And when India started to um, experience a surge in cases of COVID, they put a ban on exporting the AstraZeneca, their version of the AstraZeneca vaccine. Um, so if you don't control your domestic supply, um, you're shopping around and hoping that you're going to be able to find something, but there's no guarantee. So how long is this going to have, uh, go on for? Well, um, I'd ask Johnson & Johnson, who are the ones who, um, who supply Tylenol. I'd ask um, the subsidiary of GlaxoSmithKline that supplies the um, liquid Advil. They might know, um, but they're... Again, we're relying, we're relying on foreign-controlled companies who um, are sourcing material from um, overseas. Is this something that happened um, quickly? Is this something that uh, this whole supply chain, I mean, obviously it happened over years, right, that this supply chain shifted to the way it is now. Is there, is there, a, is there an easy fix for Canada to try to reestablish a bit of resiliency when it comes to medications, not just kids' medications, but anything? Well, there, 
No, there's no easy fix, but there are some uh, possible fixes in the medium to longer term. So, for instance, um, one of the things we need to do is we need to identify critical medications that are made by single companies. So these are medications that are really necessary to preserve health or life. So we're talking about um, anesthetic agents so that people can have surgery. We're talking about antibiotics um, where they're the only ones that will treat a particular infection, things like that. We need a list of those things uh, that are made by a single company so that we have an idea of what may go into short supply. And then we need to start going out and finding alternative suppliers for those drugs. Australia is doing that. They are signing agreements with companies to maintain stocks of these kind of medications for a six-month period so that if they start to run low, they still got a reserve supply there. Um, we could cut the, we could um, negotiate with countries like Australia or the UK or countries in Western Europe where medications are being made and have some kind of a secure deal so that if one of those countries um, has a short supply, the other country agrees to, um, to sell them the medication. Um, there are a variety of solutions that are being proposed. Um, none of them is going to get us Tylenol in the supplies we need next week or even in a few months. But we've been taught a lesson here about, the, about our vulnerabilities and we need to start doing something about that um, as soon as possible. Well, Joe Lexgen, thank you so much for your insight on this. I appreciate it. Okay. Thanks for your interest in this. I'm going to ask you tonight about plant-based meat because I noticed of late um, that there has been less of it. We talk about it less. We're hearing about it less. It doesn't mean that fewer people aren't making different choices about what they eat, but it turns out um, that the industry itself is going through a bit of a, well, you could pardon the pun, uh, uh, some growing pains, some growing pains these days. A lot of big names jumped into the plant-based meat space a couple of years ago. There were I, uh, IPOs, there were celebrity endorsements, uh, even some of the big companies, big meat companies actually were moving in thinking this was going to happen and happen fast. And as it turned out, it didn't, or it isn't happening quite as fast as people expected at first. And there are Certainly some reasons behind that. Um, you know, the allure was meant to be wide. That was sort of the issue. It wasn't just for vegans and so on. It was meant to be for a lot of folks out there. Flexitarians, they call them. You know, tasty, but better for you, better for your wallet, better for the planet. Sort of the, the trifecta there when it came to plant-based meat. Uh, but sales flatlined a bit in 2020. They dropped last year, at least in the U.S. Uh, big names, again, like McDonald's, decided against making the was it called the McPLT? <laughs> the plant burger, um, the McPlant burger. Uh, decided against making it a permanent menu item. So has it lost its sizzle? If so, why? Will it grow again? 
To help us with all those questions, Julian McClements is a distinguished professor in the Department of Food Science at the University of Massachusetts. He's an expert on this stuff. Uh, he, he knows all about the science of it as well, and he joins us now to tell us all about it. Thanks for your time. Yeah, great. Thanks for having me. This has been an interesting topic because I see people talking about it all of a sudden, and I'm wondering what what exactly is going on. The, the I, I you know the headlines are always you know plant based meats lose their sizzle. I guess is the pun. Uh, is that true? Uh, I think a, a little bit. I think there's a few companies like Beyond Meat have um, been laying a f- uh, people off, and I think a, a lot of it's related to the uh, economy. Uh, you know, and pe- these products are still quite expensive, so I think you know people have, are more reluctant to buy them. Yeah, I, I guess therein lies some of the issues, right? One is um, price point. Uh, at this point, I guess the big sale was that it would be at least cost relative to the real thing, but so far it hasn't been. Why is that? Yeah, I think it's just it's just challenging to put these things together. I think there's you know lots of different ingredients that you have to you know isolate from nature. You have to purify, um, and then you have to combine them together to make these products. So I, I think at the moment there's still a lot of you know science towards optimi- you know, reducing the cost of, of these products. I gather that part of the problem too is sort of a we've seen a universal jump in the price of some of the main components, right? Soybeans, peas, grains, everything is up because of various supply chain issues in the war in Ukraine. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think um, Ukraine and Russia are two of the biggest suppliers of things like soybeans and wheat and things like and sunflowers, which are important ingredients in these foods. What um, what 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 else are we seeing this? Do we have a lot of consumers to sort of try? Because I remember it was very popular when it first happened. And there seemed to be a lot of buzz around it. But I guess people tried it and thought, I'll take a step back. Yeah, I think that's one of the challenges is, you know, if you look at how many people are vegans or vegetarians, it's growing, but it's still a very small part of the population, probably less than 5% of the population. So 95% of the people still want foods that taste like real meat. And I think it's really challenging to make those from plant-based ingredients. So when people try them, they haven't got the right mouthfeel or the flavor profile. So I think it's it's a work in progress at the moment. Uh, what about the health benefits themselves? Because I've been reading that, um, you know, oftentimes there are a lot of ingredients in plant-based meat. And sometimes, and I, I gather the meat industry has been doing their best to point this out too. Um, but there are some questions about the health benefits of, of plant-based meat, at least what's out there so far. Yeah, I think people often assume that if you switch to a plant-based diet, it's healthier for you. But I think that's not necessarily true. I mean, I think we've looked in the, at some of the commercial products and, you know, some of these plant-based bacon or, or plant-based uh, salmon products, they've got almost 0% protein in and they're just full of saturated fat and salt. So they're actually, you know, if you switched over to those, it'd be worse for your health. But that's not true of all the plant-based products. Some companies are really making a big effort to make them healthier. And part of my research is to try and, you know, make them nutritionally comparable with, um, you know, animal-based products so we don't have those nutritional um, drawbacks. What are the challenges in that? Yeah, I think, first of all, you've got to make sure that you get the right um, nutrient composition, so the right amount of proteins and omega-3 fatty acids and, you know, not have too much salt and sugar in there. Uh, and when you do that, that's going to affect the flavor and the texture. So you've got to try and, you know, use these healthful ingredients, but still create something that looks, tastes and feels good. Uh, and then, you know, like a lot of animals have certain kinds of micronutrients, like vitamins and minerals that you don't find in plant-based foods. So in that case, you have to fortify the plant-based foods. The, the texture aspect of this too, and you mentioned it earlier, the kind of mouthfeel of these things has been a bit of a challenge. I know, you know, things like chicken nuggets and burgers have been, 
have been are out there and and sort of uh, ground beef, but they're having a hard time, at least so far, with things like steak, right? Things that other people might buy more regularly if they were available. Yeah, well, I think they've got a very complicated structural architecture. If you actually look inside these products and see how the different components, which are mainly proteins, are arranged into these very complex structures, that it's very difficult to mimic using plant-based ingredients, which are completely different. So I think, again, that's a lot of the work we're doing now. We're trying to use like what's called soft matter physics or polymer, polymer physics concepts to try and redesign these foods so they, they've got structures and textures and mouthfeels which are more similar to you know, real animal products. It is, a, it is fascinating work, I assume, to try and figure that out. It must be, it must be a lot of hit and miss. It's it's incredibly complicated from a, like a polymer science point of view. I'm actually going to uh, MIT tomorrow to talk about this. And, uh, you know, just when you think about polymers, you know, they're complicated materials, but food polymers are, are like 10 times more complicated than any normal polymer that we have to deal with. There's so many different molecules and they're all organized into these really complex structures. So we really need like the best scientists in the world to be working on this if we're going to solve this problem and make these things more um, edible or desirable to consumers. I never really thought of the plant-based burger as being such a feat of science, but I guess it is. Oh, it's incredibly complicated. Yeah, you need to you need to look at like the physics of light and optics, how, how light waves bounce off it. You've got to look at all the the cloud of aroma molecules that come off and make sure that they're similar to meat products. You've got to make sure it breaks down in your mouth the same way when you put your teeth into it and you mix it with saliva. So it's incredibly complicated the physics and chemistry and biology involved. So I would imagine we're just at the very beginnings of this then in some ways. Yeah, I think it's, uh, I mean, just in the last five years, it's gone from very little research in this area to like lots and lots of different um, researchers around the world that are really focusing on this. And I think we're really starting to make important advances in, in understanding the material science behind these complex materials. And that's leading to better quality products. Because there is a sense that if the product itself is um, tastes good and uh, fills the need in the market, that people, consumers would be, you know, they might not eat them all the time. Flexitarians, I guess, is the word. But that people would look at a plant-based alternative at least now and then, and that would be important cutting down the impact of, of, um, of meat worldwide. Because demand is growing up and we just don't have the planet to grow, to, to produce it all on. Yeah, and I think it's a big theme in the COP27 meeting in Egypt this week is, uh, you know, one of the big themes is is global agriculture and, you know, that we really need to re reduce the amount of meat we eat. So I, we don't all have to become vegetarians or vegans, but I think if everyone can reduce the amount of meat they eat or, or eggs and dairy products, we can have a really big impact on making the, you know, the world a, a better place and, and reducing global warming. What about uh, so? What are some of the challenges now? I mean, we talked a bit about some of the uh, the obviously the the, uh, the physical challenges of, the, of of actually producing a proper product. But when you look out at the market and so on, do you see any other challenges? I know this is not your field of expertise, but do you see any other challenges out there as well? Yeah, I mean, there's technical challenges like finding consistent ingredients, you know, and ice, being able to isolate them economically. Um, so that's one of the challenges. Like, we one of the biggest problems we have: you buy the same ingredient and it behaves differently every time you buy it. So it makes really. Sense. How, how so? How so? Well, just like, you know, say you want to get a soy protein, you know, it depends on, you know, what seed it was, where it was grown, what the climate right. was like, how it's been isolated, how it was transported and stored. So, you know, we we try and make the same product, but we get 10 different ingredients and they all behave differently. So that's a real challenge for the food industry who's trying yeah. to make a product that always looks and tastes the same at the end. 
Yeah, I guess consistency for them is job number one. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think the nutritional aspects, that's really important. I think we don't want products on the market that are going to make you know people less healthy in the future. So I think it's really important that we design that into these products right right from the beginning. So I think we have much, we need to have more emphasis on that. Um, you, oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, and I was just saying consumer perception. It's like, you know, really highlighting what the benefits from switching from an animal-based to plant-based diet. I mean, you can, you can have really big uh, an impact on reducing greenhouse gases and biodiversity loss and pollution and things like that. What about, uh, I was also reading about sort of a lab lab created meat which is another sort of seen as as a rival to plant-based what what impact might that have yeah i think there's a the lab grown meat and then there's also like microbial meat which is very similar except you use microbes like bacteria or um, fungi to grow a meat-like product which has got this like high proteins and vitamins and minerals in it or you can use you know like um, a chicken cell or a beef cell and grow it up in a fermentation tank like you would grow beer uh, and then turn that into a burger or a, a chicken leg or something like that it seems i mean when you talk about it julia the thing about it is that you almost have to reimagine how what food is and and that's difficult for us i think yeah, and I've just finished writing a book on on this. I just submitted last week, and it's okay. uh, you know I was trying to think of the last chapter. What what's twenty fifty going to be like? You know, yeah. maybe maybe there's no meat anymore. You know, maybe we we're just eating some protein rich food that's been grown in a big fermentation tank, and it could be anything. It could be like a purple triangle or a yellow sphere or a bright green square. But it tastes delicious and it's healthy for us. You know? Yeah, I think I've seen that movie at, at some point. Um, yeah. So what does it, is that what that's that's where you think we could be headed? I guess it, a lot of the problem here is, 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 as you mentioned, is both chemistry, but it's also perception, right? And you mentioned that as well. Yeah, I think that's one of the most exciting things as a scientist working in this area. Is it, it just encompasses so many different parts of the human experience, you know, going from basic physics and chemistry and molecules, but going to psychology and social science and uh culture and things like that and there's you know meat and other animal products are so embedded in culture and we've all, we've all grown up eating them but you know things things can change well they're changing uh julian mcclements thank you so much yeah thank you very much for having me so the g20 is going on in bali in indonesia this week now the g20 i remember covering the second g20 was in montreal um we were mostly there for the riots, which took place outside. You remember back to those days, that was the days of the battle in Seattle, the WTO riots, the G20 riots, the G8 riots. Um, that was kind of the active protest part of that back then. Um, but the G20, Paul Martin was the head of it for the first couple of years. It was in existence in 1999. The meetings were held in Berlin in 2000 in Montreal. It was uh, the G87 came together with that idea. Uh, to expand one to include just financial talk, so it's a it's a big deal. It's an interesting one because it brings together more countries. Obviously, you have Brazil and India and China and so forth that are all there. Um, and this year, it's in Bali, Indonesia. Of course, one of the bigger economies in the world are getting there now at this point. Not quite, but growing. Um, so an important time for them to have this meeting as well. What's been interesting about this one is that it's the first time a lot of these leaders have met in quite a while, and there's three meetings back to back to back. So we had. ASEAN in uh, Cambodia over the weekend. APEC is coming up in Jakarta, or in Bangkok rather, at the end of the week, and now they're at the G20. So lots of people looking out to see what was happening this time, and all eyes earlier today, because it is again now tomorrow in uh, Bali. But uh, on Monday, 
it was the first time that President Biden had met President Xi Jinping in person. They had spoken to each other before. So the leaders of the world's largest economies sit down to chat. Um, they said it would be an urgent conversation or a conversation on how to work together on urgent global issues. Here's what President Biden had to say. As the leaders of uh, our two nations, we share responsibility, in my view, to show that China and the United States can manage our differences, prevent competition from becoming anything ever near conflict. Joe Biden there uh, earlier today talking about his meeting with Xi Jinping. Uh, the Chinese president, meantime, said he hoped that they would chart the right course for a China-U.S. relationship. It has been a strained one, to say the very least, for quite a while now. Uh, Prime Minister Trudeau is there, obviously. Will he meet with Xi Jinping? Because Xi Jinping's having a lot of meetings. We don't know. We don't know whether he will or not. They're being a bit coy about it. Um, there's a school of thought that Canada's still in the penalty box uh, and that we're not going to be able to meet with the Chinese or the Chinese don't want to meet with us. Um, the Australians know all about this. He's meeting with with Australia's leader, uh, Prime Minister Albanese, as well. So we'll see how that all shakes down. Uh, but this is an opportunity, of course, for Canada on the world stage. Um, our expressed interest of being there apparently was to further isolate Russia. Now, Vladimir Putin is not there. He decided not to go. He sent his foreign minister instead, Sergei Lavrov, who today wound up in hospital or on Monday wound up in hospital for some reason. We don't know exactly why. Um, he looked happy enough, but he's not there either. So Russia is going to be a big deal at this, but there are lots of other issues uh, on the cards. And there's lots of other issues coming up at uh, APEC at the end of the week too, the Asia, Asia Pacific Economic Cooperation Meetings uh, in Bangkok. And don't forget Canada last week, Melanie Jolie just sort of outlined our long awaited Asia-Pacific strategy uh, to some extent, sort of a, a move away from a reliance purely on China to look at the area more broadly, try and find new relationships, uh, strike new trade deals. So with all that in mind, with all that as your background, joining me now is Barbara Martin. She's an adjunct professor in the School of Public Policy or School of Policy Studies, rather, at Queen's University in Kingston and a former Canadian diplomat who knows these sorts of events well. Uh, Barbara, thank you for your time. Delighted to be with you. This is a, a busy week for the Prime Minister. Lots of uh, lots of meetings going on. The G20 today, there was uh, some significant developments. Um, just on a much broader scale, the meeting between President Xi of China and President Biden of, of the US, I mean, we, a lot of people have been waiting for this day to happen. It, it seems to have went to have gone relatively well, considering how low expectations were going in. Yes. Those sorts of meetings are always important. And I think Biden was uh, very wise in seeking that meeting out. Um, probably the Chinese also wanted that meeting. It's vital to sustain open dialogue, whether or not you agree with people. And the interesting thing is, though, on one point, there was agreement between Biden and Xi, and that is um, the th nuclear threats that Putin right. was offering. Because, of course, Xi has a particular relationship with Putin. He's been cultivating it for quite a long time now. Uh, so to basically reprimand Putin for waiving the nuclear threat was an important moment. Yeah, we saw him do it last week, I guess, with uh, or, uh, or was it the foreign minister with Olaf Scholz? Um, in that in that meeting where the China had already sort of broached that subject in that way. Um, but I imagine for both sides, it is important for them to be seen together too for the rest of the world, right? To see these two powers sitting down and talking. Yes, particularly given the importance of the Pacific, the situations that are emerging in the Pacific with North Korea, 
the increase again of uh, missile tests and the threat again of using nuclear weapons. I think there had been a hope a number of years ago that Kim would had abandoned his nuclear threats, but he's opening that door again. So yes, important for Canada also to be meeting with with China. I'm hoping that Trudeau will meet with him when they're in Bali. He's uh, been a bit coy about whether yeah. the meeting is scheduled or not. But I'm sure that's due to the behind the scenes negotiations in order to to get the meeting to happen. It's like, is it important for for the Prime Minister to be seen with uh, with President Xi or not? I I think it's more important that he actually meet with him than necessarily to be seen with him. Right. I, I think I think the point is is that China and Canada are both were important trade partners in both directions. And I don't think either it's not either of our interests to see that uh starting to unravel. And there are a lot of efforts to pull back from China, worries about the, the dominance in the technology areas and such like that. So there are interests on China's part as much as there are interests on our part. Minister Jolie, as much as her remarks were very vague, um, I think is signaling a bit of a recalibration on the part of Canada, um, something that I frankly welcome. I think I think we've been a little overboard in chasing trade and and other engagement with China with a little bit of a lack of focus on some of the serious human rights issues uh, in that country. Yeah, it felt like it was always the answer for us uh, because of our reliance on the U.S. That China seemed like such an easy alternative to that that we were blinded somewhat. And I, you know, I spent time working in China that we were blinded to some somewhat to the uh, to some of the problems that were growing over time. I mean, that uh, China had changed, and we had sorry, the Chinese government had changed, the regime had changed, but we hadn't changed much. Yeah. Well, when I teach, it's interesting. I've always con- included a, a little section on the uh, session we have on China about keeping our eyes wide open and remind them that, you know, my students, that China has interfered with uh, Canadian technology, our computer systems, uh, the attack on the National Research Council. We've had huge issues with criminals who seek to escape China and come to Canada. There have been a lot of incidents that have been building to this greater worry about China caring less about what the world thinks of it in terms of its repression of the Uyghurs, its arbitrary detention of two Canadians. I think I think China, frankly, needs to have a little bit of a reckoning as to what its reputation is in the world. And yet, it feels like if you look at Russia, um, on you know, and this year specifically, but not just not just this year. If you look at President Xi, if you look at some of the others, um, it feels like this is that that at least of late that uh, you know, dictators, the strong men, so to speak, are on the ascendancy. Now, this is keeping keeping in mind all that's happening in Ukraine as well, but. Um, it feels like there's a bit of a divide at at something like a G20 now between the democracies and the non-democracies. I certainly agree that both China and Putin, uh, Russia, create dilemmas within those organizations. But I don't think that there's a divide. I think those leaders are somewhat isolating themselves from the rest of the community um, to their detriment. Um, 
Putin is not doing well in Ukraine, and he's going to have a lot to account for when this situation is resolved. And I, you know, think that that will leave Russia with a significantly tarnished reputation for some time. And indeed, even China, Xi has been somewhat distancing himself. Putin used to go to the Chinese military um, parades every year, and he'd sit there in the grandstand looking. And I'm certainly going to check it out whether he's invited again this year. Barbara Martin is with us, adjunct professor at the School of Policy Studies at Queen's University, a former Canadian diplomat. We've been talking about a number of international meetings, some very high profile meetings today at the G20 in Bali. Um, you were just We were just about to talk about how useful the G20 was. The G20 was created under very specific circumstances during the financial crisis and did a lot of good or there was a lot of collaboration between China, America and so on. Is it still, does it still work? It felt like an expanded G7 or G8 at the time was a good idea. Does it still work? I personally think it does. In 2014, I co-chaired with a Russian diplomat. It was the Russian G20 presidency, the um, G20 working group on anti-corruption. And I certainly saw the kind of work that was occurring within the G20 countries to implement legislation, to adhere to international standards, to make themselves more viable trading partners, because corruption is a huge issue for many of the countries around the world. So there was a real impetus for them to deal with that. So that is one small example um, where I saw and still see the G20 as having an important role in helping to, to raise those sorts of standards among all of the countries within the G20. And what importance does the gathering have then for that? Because I imagine a lot of this work goes on despite, the, I mean, the gathering itself isn't, is, is, is the pinnacle, but it isn't really. There's all this work going on, as you mentioned, uh, behind the scenes throughout the year. It's a huge machinery that, um, that has developed behind the G20 um, since its inception. In the first official G20 meeting was in Toronto, although there were pre-meetings, and it was very much inspired by um, then Minister Paul Martin. That's right. But the architecture is huge, covering uh, a lot of different areas of shared interest, including health and and a whole myriad of financial efforts to continue to manage the global financial system. It's opportunities for countries to steer the focus. Each country puts their own emphasis on what issue they want to to focus on during their presidency, and that gives them an opportunity to shine. So it serves multitudes of purposes, um, sort of helping other countries also participate in a leadership role in the international collaboration. Yeah, I remember the first G20 actually back because the issues seemed so different. It was at the time what was so interesting about it, it was the, it was clearly bringing together all these nations to talk about economics. And I think part of the issue is that now it's become sort of the G7 expanded where a lot of political issues are on the table. For instance, Canada's stated goal at this G20 was to further isolate Russia, uh, mm -hmm. blaming it, of course, from a lot of the economic problems we're seeing. Uh, have we Has it lost its way in that sense a bit, the way that we approach it sort of politically and, and as a public relations exercise? I don't think it's lost its way at all. I, I think there's a room for a variety of fora 
For example, you know, we talk about the ASEAN meeting. Canada for, is a partner country. It's not a full member of ASEAN. So we go and we play a different role in that context. In the G20, we're a full member, and it's a way of drawing in a wider circle. In the G7, it's much easier to get consensus in that context. And so it can sort of push the international agenda in a certain way, show some leadership, hopefully draw others into, into uh, the kind of direction that the G7 would be taking. So I suppose we shouldn't put too much stock then as to whether or not there's a joint statement at the end, a communique, so to speak. Uh, usually those are agreed upon before everyone shows up. So I imagine if they're saying there isn't one, it's probably because there won't be, that we should just be, uh, I mean, talking at the end of the day is, is really what's important, I suppose, as long as these leaders are still sitting together and chatting, that's a good sign. It's nice to have um, an agreed statement, but frankly, a chair will provide a summary of the meeting and they have a significant responsibility to represent the, in a sense, what consensus there was that agreed, that, that emerged. Um, it's interesting, the, the G7 summit that would, took place in Huntsville, um, same time as the G20 summit right. took place in Toronto, I was working on that way back when, and we were having a lot of trouble reaching an agreement on the communique language. There were some red line issues for Russia in particular. So I suggested uh, in the context uh, that perhaps it was better to not have a communique than to grieve ground on these three red lines. And Prime Minister Harper actually agreed. And so Russia was furious. I had some pretty stern words from a Russian diplomat. But the prime minister simply did his own summary of the meeting at the conclusion of the meeting. The communique is important, but what we experienced was prelude to Prime Minister Harper, of course, at the Charlevoix summit, where they decided that Russia should no longer be a participant in the G7 slash G8. Right. Barbara Martin, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much. Thank you. Happy to chat. November you may know, is Financial Literacy Month. And this year, uh, the focus is on debt. Uh, the Bank of Canada governor was spelling out uh, some hard truths today, at least according to him. Uh, Tiff Macklem stating kind of the obvious, saying low-income Canadians are the hardest hit by high inflation and will be disproportionately affected by the impending economic slowdown that we're expecting, at least the Bank of Canada is expecting. And he says, though... Restoring low inflation, which is all the interest rate hikes are meant to do, will ultimately make all Canadians better off. Unfortunately, there is no easy out to restoring price stability. But once we rebalance demand and supply, growth will pick up. Our economy will grow solidly and the benefits of low and predictable inflation will be restored. Tiff Macklin, the Bank of Canada governor. It feels like a lot of, I mean, we know what the recipe book is from the Bank of Canada. You know, you you raise interest rates, you quell demand, or you, at least you you stifle demand. Demand drops, prices drop, inflation drops, and we go back to normal, or at least back to something like normal. It, it doesn't seem to be working the same way. I mean, we saw some evidence that in the states it is actually working to a certain extent, um, but it's been tricky. There are so many different factors involved here that what may have worked 20, 30 years ago, which is sort of economic dogma may not be working this time around. And the pain that it's causing a certain segment of this population has to make you wonder, 
if there are ways that could have been done differently. Uh, again, I'm not a governor. I'm not a Bank of Canada governor. You know, you leave the great decisions in the minds of those who know how, who are hired, paid handsomely to do it. But it feels like if both the solution, both the, you know, the disease and the cure are both painful to the most vulnerable parts of a society, it doesn't, it happens often, but it feels like something has to be, something isn't right, right? If both the disease and the cure hurt the same people, um, who can least afford it, by the way. So when it comes to financial literacy, perhaps this is a time where all of us use a little refresher on our financial literacy. Um, you, it'll come as no surprise to you that Canadians across the spectrum are pretty gloomy about the state of their personal finances these days, um, more so than they have been in more than a decade. One poll I was looking at showing that nearly half say their finances have worsened over the past year, 13% say they've improved. So half of Canadians are worse off, 13% say they're better off. And again, um, it comes in the middle of, of, of these interest rates hikes, of, of price hikes that we're seeing across the board. So for some help on this, on financial literacy, understanding debt, some advice. Joining me now is Natasha McMillan. She's Director of Everyday Banking at RateHub.ca. Natasha, thanks for your time. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, timely, I mean, this year particularly, uh, I know every year we pay attention to Financial Literacy Month, but this year a focus on debt. It feels like something that couldn't be more uh, necessary or timely uh, in 2022. Absolutely. I think we're all feeling a bit of a crunch as it's been coming through the Bank of Canada rates and things are just getting more and more expensive, unfortunately. When we look at debt, and just this is just maybe your, your personal perception of things, but how well do we really understand? How financially literate are we when it comes to things like debt and how it accrues? I think for the generic Canadian and the average person in us, we're aware of it, but don't necessarily understand the semantics of how often does it accrue, the total payment that ends up hitting us, um, and things like that. And so while we're aware that while we might have credit card debt or anything like that, we are aware of those interest payments coming out or it hitting us. But I don't think we fully understand that over time, the overall price that we're paying for it. Yeah, sometimes you see those um, infographics that explain how much you'll pay for something over the lifetime of it if you let the interest build up. I guess we don't really, maybe it's better now, but we didn't learn a lot of this in school, did we? At least as kids. No, we definitely didn't. And I know personally, my parents rarely had these conversations with me either. And it's something that I really think is important that we go out to students, especially those in high school, teach them about debt, teach them about these interest rates. And particularly in university, that's when a lot of students get their own, their first credit card or start thinking about saving. And they don't really have a sense of what all that means or that full financial literacy picture. Yeah, I think I had that rude awakening in financial literacy with my first credit card at university. <laughs> you know, I think we all did. We were like, wait a second, that's a, you know, those payments are high. And if you just make the minimum payment, it never goes away. That sort of burden. Luckily, it was low, a low, um, a low max. But wow, that, yeah, that's, that's a tough way to learn things. So you put out some tips this year to try to help people out. Um, on, on people who are entering. We're going into winter. Things are getting more expensive still. We have heating to worry about. Um, where does one start? Where, where, would you, where do you think people should start when it comes to, uh, to practicing better financial, uh, to developing better, better financial habits this year? So our first tip is to start saving, even if it's a little tiny amount that you can go without noticing. So recommend always reviewing your monthly expenses 
identifying how much you're spending and starting to see where you might be able to trim these costs on non-essential items. Sometimes that's not possible and that's okay. But just being aware of how much your income is going out the door on things that you absolutely can't trim and then starting to identify where you can. So kind of creating that monthly budget and monitoring your spending. And then a tip that I personally have found useful is even just having an automatic um, transfer amount that comes out of your bank account when you get your paycheck, even as small as $10 goes a long way because you don't really notice money in those small increments sometimes. And that way it's being transferred directly into a high interest savings account or an investment account. And that just grows over time. So if that's an option, that will be great. And it'll start to help you save over time. Where are some of the hidden the hidden ones? Because I think a lot of people are pretty aware of, of how much money they spend, say, on groceries. We've developed a bit of a sixth sense of when things are getting more expensive. But where do you think some of the, the hidden costs are that people should be looking out for? Is it in sort of reoccurring monthly fees that they keep paying and don't have to be paying as much for them? Or where do you think some of those those savings might lie? So another big saving might be, um, of course, trying to pay off your debt as quickly or as reasonably as possible. And there's really two big ways to look at it. Um, So as a general rule, you should ideally keep your debt payment, shouldn't add up more to 15 or 20% of your gross monthly income before taxes. Sometimes it can go higher. We understand that. And so it's recommended to either look at the debt avalanche or the snowball method. So the debt avalanche method advocates that you focus on the debt with the highest interest first, regardless of the total sum outstanding or your balance. And that way, you're actually hitting where it's going to cost you the most in the long run. Especially these days, I would imagine, because those costs are going up even further. Exactly. And so if you can focus on that, great. For some people, the snowball method actually works best, where it's, If you've got debt on multiple credit cards, for example, ranking them from highest to lowest in terms of balance owing. So some people work really well of, I've paid the lowest balance off. It's kind of a win to your psyche and how you feel of like, I've got one credit card debt out of the way. And so it's really identifying what gives you that gratification and success metric at the end. For me personally, it's definitely kind of paying the least of interest where possible. So I'm someone who follows the debt avalanche method. But I know for my husband, for example, he's more in the snowball, getting rid of any small amount of one less thing to think of. So um, that would be kind of another key recommendation is finding what works for you and your family and with regards to paying off debt and kind of tackling that as a method together. I guess part of it is is like anything, it's trying to develop that discipline, right? So if if, if the interest avalanche uh, is something that, that you know it's probably going to work more effectively depending on what kind of debt you have, but the snowball uh, one may work as well if what you really need to do is develop that discipline to make sure you're that you're continuing, you're keeping on with it, right? Absolutely, absolutely. So we've seen great discussions in this past year with GICs. GICs are a great way to kind of save in a safe, conservative method. Of course, keeping in mind that typically you do put your money in for a specific term and it's hard to access your money for that during that term without paying a fee. 
but that's kind of another great way to kind of save money in this high interest rate environment. Yeah, these may be some options that people haven't heard about in years, right? Like in going back a long time, there's some options that are suddenly attractive again that you might not even have thought about in the last decade or more. Absolutely. Like I grew up hearing my parents talk about GICs and kind of never thought about them really until the last two years and more specifically this year. I've had number of friends kind of reach out being like, what GIC should we look at? Is this a worthwhile investment? And I think for the first time in 10 years or so, it's really back at the forefront of a great investment option, especially if you're looking for something safe, you're not quite comfortable with risk or anything like that. Natasha McMillan is with us this half hour. She's Director of Everyday Banking at RateHub.ca. We're talking about Financial Literacy Month. That is indeed Financial Literacy Month. This year's theme, uh, a timely one, debt. We've uh, gone over a few different ways you can approach debt. Also, the importance of saving, uh, the importance of diversifying your investments. We were talking about GIC, some of the things that you could look at now in 2022 that may harken back to you know 30 years ago, things you haven't looked at in that really low interest environment. They just didn't make any sense at all, but they might now. Um, Natasha, about credit cards, because you've talked about that as well, because that's an area where many, many Canadians fall into traps is, is through uh, either buy now, pay later, or credit cards. How should we be approaching that uh, that payment vehicle these days, given the circumstances? When it comes to specifically credit cards, always recommend ensuring that you're not falling for some of the gimmicks of sign up for this credit card with an amazing welcome bonus without actually thinking about the long-term plan if that fits within your spending. Because typically what we see is people get these credit cards and they use them to get the welcome bonus or the promotions, but they're spending on things they otherwise wouldn't necessarily need or spending that is outside of their realistic realm. What are some of the more obvious examples of that without naming names? (laughs) In other words, I think all of us as Canadians are very aware of every credit card, especially going into the holiday season is coming out with these amazing reward programs. So whether it's get more aero plan points or get more membership reward points, every credit card I would say today has great bonuses that kind of are trying to attract users. Some of them extremely helpful. There are some great offers with regards to kind of balance transfer credit cards or low interest credit cards, but just being conscious of spending what is realistic as opposed to spending just to get that welcome bonus. Yeah, and what about the low low interest um, credit cards? Always a good option for people these days because oftentimes the rewards, I mean, they're nice, but how often do you use the rewards? I have a cashback one that's that's effective, but the rewards ones, I just don't use as much anymore. Credit card reward programs are great for those who pay off their monthly balance every month. Typically, you pay a month, uh, an annual fee with these reward programs, and you really don't get the benefit if you're paying those interest payments. So if you are someone who has a monthly balance or you carry a monthly balance, we recommend really looking at low interest credit cards or no annual fee credit cards. And those typically are ones that the rewards aren't as great. Uh, perhaps some of the perks and the benefits are not up for uh, competition with some of the other cards, but you're also not paying for them. Yeah, I, um, I guess it makes sense just to pull out that list of advantages you get with the card and try to figure out exactly how many of them you actually ever use. Exactly. And I was a big um, advocate of this. And I realized once I kind of started focusing more and more on credit cards through my career of 
oh, wow, I have a credit card that I don't use any of the benefits for and I pay an annual fee. And when you start that list and you check off how much of it you actually use, I think many people would be very shocked of how little of their benefit programs do they actually use. You've you've spoken too about the cashback ones. What are your thoughts on on those? Because they're popular now. Uh, certainly through the pandemic, they became increasingly popular because no one was using their travel rewards, right? Yeah, cashback um, throughout the pandemic was a great hit, especially as travel was becoming more and more restrictive. And we're starting to see um, again another resurgence of them, largely because people are feeling a bit tight on cash with everything going on, and so. It is really good to look at where you're spending. So um, a lot of people are spending on groceries and gas, and there are credit cards out there that give you a higher cashback rate for those spending categories. So really important to look at where you spend and trying to identify a credit card that matches that. I know for me, groceries and gas is a big one. I've got kind of two kids. And so the CIBC, for example, Dividend Visa Infinite is a great card that offers 4% cash back in those spaces. Oh wow! But again, really only recommend kind of the reward programs for those that are kind of paying off their monthly balance. Natasha McMillan, thank you so much. Thank you.